I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. The first thing that has sort of had a huge impact on me in, in preparing for this is seeing that um, you used to edit the Walsall Observer's children's page <laughs> yeah, under yeah, yeah. the pseudonym Uncle Tom. Yeah. And then you became the jazz critic of the Morning Star. Yeah. Under the... <laughs> That's right. right. Which I would have thought was one of the best transitions ever to sort of happen if I didn't know that you also made a transition from writing a book called Mrs. Slocum's Pussy to um, a book about the Frankfurt School. And (laughs) I'd be interested to know um, really... What, um, what, well, what, (laughs) (laughs) what, um, what would the Frankfurt School have made of Mrs. Slocum and her pussy? Would they have laughed? Because I, oh, God, a good question. (laughs) Um, What would she have made of them? You can answer either one. She'd probably try to get off with at least one of them, (laughs) but she, um, no, hold on, let's not not go down that route, but um. Adorno, I think, would have been very interested in Mrs. Slocum's pussy, what it signified. In, in yeah. Minimum Moralia, he writes a lot about fe- you know, femininity as being, um, you know, he's having an argument with, with Nietzsche about, you know, Nietzsche says, ghost out a woman, forget not thy whip. Adorno says, you know, people forget that femininity is an effect of the whip. So he, he, would, he would have been interested in what, uh, what, how, how Mrs. Slocum had constructed herself as a woman in, in, a, in a patriarchal society, I think. Um, so, I mean, do you want to sort of, having kind of started with Adorno and um, his views of women, I mean, do you, I mean, the question really is sort of maybe is the best starting point after that is to who were the members of the Frankfurt School and what were they trying to do? And, you know, I mean, that's probably enough to, to focus on. Right. I mean, um, I guess they all came, they, they came together after the, after, after the war and after the success of the Russian Revolution and the, what seemed to be then the unexpected and inexplicable failure of the German Revolution. Mm. Um, so initially they came together in um, at, uh, what was called First Marxist Study Week um, in Ilmenau in Germany in 1923. A lot, of, a lot of German Marxists came together to really to work out why that revolution had failed and, and did Marxism need to be reconfigured in the light of the failure of an advanced industrial country, Germany, which should have been the country which delivered revolution and didn't. Why did it mm. happen there? Why, 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 did, why had Lenin been successful, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht not? Mm. So there were a lot of, Marx, Mar- and a lot of Marxists around, you know, I mean, I say in the book in, in, in a rather trite way, I suppose, that it's like the Monty Python's life of Brian, the, the, fac- the, the left-wing factions in Germany meeting at this, um, in Il- Ilmenau at that time, were, were just, there were so many different perspectives on, on, on Marxism. But one, one understanding came from this great book, published in 1922 by Georgi Lukash. Uh, the suggestion is that... Uh, there was a problem of consciousness, um, that the working classes did not have sufficient revolutionary consciousness to deliver revolution. They didn't understand their objective needs. So. Um, and this appealed to a lot of, of Marxists and young, and young left-wingers at the time, including most of the people who, who I write about in the book. Um, certainly it appealed to Herbert Marcuse, who, who had who'd, who'd seen service during the failed Berlin uprisings in 1919. Um, fighting against um, the Fry Corps. Um, it appealed to, to um, Adorno, Theodore Adorno, who was a sort of younger guy who was too young to fight in the war at all. Um, it appealed to Max Horkheimer, who became the, the, the most important leader of, of, of the Frankfurt School in its most decisive period. Um, and it appealed to other, other figures too. Um, but but I, th- I think the th- thing is, it, what, what was going on is that Marxism could no longer seem to deliver automatically revolution. Vulgar Marxism, which said there are historical laws and you can just sit back and watch the revolution happen, that is no, that, that is no longer a feasible 
I'm not quite sure who believed that ever believed mm. that that was the case, but that shibboleth was knocked down. And so you had to think about what was wrong with the German working classes, why revolution ha hadn't happened. So in 19... Yeah. Go on, yeah. No, no, go ahead. No, in 1924, you know, the, uh, mm. bankrolled by um, the, the, the son of the world's biggest wheat grain speculator. Um, so they're paid for by a huge, by a capitalist, mm. really, to, to, to set up a, a Marxist institute to research what has gone wrong and... and and perhaps how to foment revolution. Um, they all come together and, and do that. And then for the next six years until the 30s, they, they don't really achieve a great deal in reconfiguring Marxism until the guys I focus on in the book um, come along and take it further, I think. And what were they doing that was so different from what it had gone before? How did well, they kind of, what was their yeah. main way of understanding what had gone wrong with the working class, as it were, or what the problem was? Yeah. I don't know if I can get the German word right, but the Verblendung Zusammenhang. Which, oh, yeah, it's a great word. Which means a total system of delusion. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and the suggestion is that's what had been imposed on um, the German working classes. And the tool, and this is what connects, connects this book with Mrs. Slocum's Pussy, is that, uh, that, that culture was, now, was, was part, should be regarded as part of that mm. imposing a system of delusion, d divorcing people from their real objective needs and making them... Um, um, willing subjects for, for, for capitalism, that, um, and that's that, uh, and, and, and to understand why that had happened, they they they, they went multidisciplinary. Mm. Under under Horkheimer, who took over as the director of the, of the <coughs> institute in um, in 1930, um, and to do they so they went interdisciplinary, and, and and they and they started to think about. So they started to use psychoanalytical theory. They, start, they, 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 weren't, they didn't just focus on, on economics as, as the main thing. They focused on our unconscious desires. They focused on culture. But they also did focus on what, what the economic change in the sense that no longer was uh, the possibility of solidarity between workers because of the way in which the um, Fordist... Um, economic revolution of mass production had evolved. People, mm. The solidarity was no longer possible between workers who didn't feel as they had much in common. So they're and analysing all these trend, new, new trends. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I think one thing that's a very interesting aspect with this book is that you connect that to the sort of, I mean, we're leaping ahead quite a few years and then we'll go back to the kind of the characters and the personalities but, um, and the ideas, but you're connecting that to the world that we live in today and the, um, the sort of the mass... Um, sort of turmoil of, of um, cultural influences and yeah. appearances and consumerism. And, I mean, one detail that really stuck in my mind from the book is that if you go into the Tate Modern yeah, gift yeah, yeah. shop, it's full of all these books on critical theory, uh, kind of in the Frankfurt School's way of seeing things, all turned to commodities yeah, yeah. And sort of sold alongside all the kind of tat and trivia that's, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that every museum has in its gift shop. And, um, I mean, is that the kind of thing that they were looking towards and foreseeing in a way or sort of seeing the early signs of? Would that have seemed to them as the kind of the ultimate proof of their ideas, basically? Well, I mean... The you know, Horkheimer and Adorno wrote this great book, Dialects Giving Enlightenment, which they, you know, the big section on which is, is on, on, on the culture industry. And the idea is that culture op operates as a, a medium of, I guess, ideological control to pr produce subservience. Mm. Um, and uh, the revolutionary potential of art it, it gets sidelined all the time. And, uh, yeah, so they might walk into Tate Modern and think, yeah, this is just... You know, realization. I told you so. Yeah, I told you so. And I think that probably a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of what is happening to us is that now how we live now would have been a, a bit of I told you so from all of, from from those guys. So from you. But it's interesting that they um, this kind. Of, it seems like this sort of led them, and you. I mean, you address this directly in the book. This this led to them them into a, an attitude to popular culture that yeah. could be described as kind of elitist because yeah they were saying, well, this is all. It's just like this sort of you know this entertainment that's distracting the working class and so yeah. as the former jazz critic for the morning star yeah, yeah. you quite rightly highlight the fact that for example they didn't think very much of jazz or certainly Adorno didn't they sort of thought that it was um yeah. a um that it was they were criticizing it from a radical perspective that you were never going to get to the revolution by listening to to jazz music because it was too pop it was too popular it was too um sort of I know. yeah yeah and that, 
I mean, I still read, I still read Adorno's, you know, essay on jazz with outrage and just think, what are you talking about? <laughs> and what he was talking about was an experience he'd had of jazz in in Germany. So everything he'd listened to up to, up to that point was white German jazz bands. So he didn't really, which is not a good way to appreciate, you know, <laughs> appreciate with all due respect to white German jazz bands of that area era. And he, I think jazz, that's right, there's a, a story in which he says, the, even the word jazz sounded to him like hats, which is like a, a, right. a pack of hounds. Right. So yeah. he had this sense of being pursued by this distasteful bunch of people. But then he writes some, not, I mean, not racist things, but really racially interesting things, you know, frightening things. Where he talks about um, the saxophone as being, having a coloristic effect rather like the Negro's skin. Which is a really weird thing to say, but he's, he's got you know he's got this weird sense of of him writing about a culture he doesn't quite understand through mm. a prism which is distorting. Um, but he doesn't get any, he doesn't change. You know he goes mm. to he go he, you know in exile he gets exiled to well first of all to Oxford where I don't know what the jazz scene was like there in the nineteen thirties but I can't imagine it was particularly swinging. Um, then he goes to L.A. Well, I think he goes to, no, he goes to New York first, and then he goes out to L.A., where he could have heard, you know, Lester mm. Young, he could have heard Eric Dolph, he could have you know, heard lots of great people. And, and if he did, it didn't change his perspective because he still writes about it in this disparaging way. But the point you make is absolutely right. He's not... Uh, uh, it's a difficult point, actually, mm. because, it, you know, their perspective on what we would call popular culture is reads as though it's snobbish, but it's also a radical critique mm. of... Of how we're held down by um, in, uh, cultural industries. Yeah, know? yeah. And that's yeah. what they hate throughout. But it, you know, it's difficult mm. to sort of sometimes, and, they, and they're very diff, diff, different in their, pre, you know, Horkheimer and Adorno, uh, very conservative or seemingly conservative in their appreciation of new music or new or new popular music or popular art forms. Whereas Walter Benjamin, who we haven't really talked about mm. yet, who's I think the great intellectual influence behind the Frankfurt School, the, 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 the brains behind the outfit, really wrote in 1936 this great essay about um, work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, suggesting that these new art forms have um, revolutionary potential. So, you know, think about like, um, montage uh, in, in film, how that can, sort of, that, that can produce these dislocating effects. You know, what, what Brecht is trying to achieve in, in, through alienation effects in the theatre Benjamin kind of implies Ziga Vertov is doing with, you know, editing and uh, montage and, uh, and things like that. So, and he thinks that's great because it'll just break mm. up this smooth surface of, of culture and, 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 and the world and, and help us have a revolutionary <laughs> perspective uh, on the world and change the world. So these art forms, these new art forms can help us, you know, help become tool, well, help us achieve revolution. And he tried to do that with his own writing too, didn't he? In this kind of yeah. frag fra deliberately fragmented. Yeah, well, he's just stealing. He's just stealing, yeah. stealing from the Russian, you know, great, mm. great Russian directors, um, great Soviet directors, I should say. You know, what becomes his literary technique, which is jump cuts mm. and you know switchbacks and uh, you know all, all the stuff that I tried. I, I did the first draft of this book uh, in which I tried to do something similar, and it was a disaster. It was a, <laughs> because you know what, I should have told a linear. Uh, you know what, what, I, what, what I've told is a linear chronological story. The first draft was all that, you know, it was mm. just curling around and cutting back and backwards and forwards, trying to do what he did in One Way Street in 1927, and uh, it didn't work. My editor told me so, and he was right. <laughs> well, I mean, what you do do because you, you're very chronological, I think, very effectively, and you know, I really enjoyed it. Is you're, you're showing how the ideas were developing in relation to what was going on around them. So this, these, it's totally bound up with the rise of Nazism and the. Second World War and the fact that they left and, you know, a lot of them ended up in Los Angeles and, you know, you've got a real sense, because it's chronological, you have such a sense of how they all fit in relation to each other and how they were developing in relation to um, what was going on ar around them. And I, I mean, starting with, in fact, you know, talking about uh, Walter, ben Walter Benjamin, yeah. you, your first chapter, which I, I found really moving and, and fascinating how you wrote about his childhood memoir yeah. and his account of his Berlin childhood and yeah. how, how even in that it wasn't just straightforward memoir, he was using his te techniques, you know, he was deliberately using it as a kind of way of critiquing his <clears throat> sort of childhood or, you know, critiquing the entire way that he saw yeah. um, Berlin and, and what was happening. So I wondered if you could say a bit more about that and about him really because he seems such an 
I mean, he is such a, a moving, tragic, and appealing character. At least I found him. Yeah, he is, but, but he's also like a lot of them. You know, a, a pampered uh, mm. wretch who you can get really irritated with. You know, yeah. and, and if you're not getting irritated with, him, it's like this. What there's one. I think I start off with a rather beautiful image of him waking up on 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 a on a winter's morning, and, and there's and, and there's a, and a little stove next to his bed, and, and and there's an apple baking in it. And you think, well, who put that there? The maid, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and so you rush into this world of luxury and servitude, and 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 he writes, and he writes, and he writes, I suppose, quite you know, revealingly about how he never really experienced working class people because he lived, as he felt, mm. in a in a ghetto, not just a Jewish ghetto, although West, the villas in West Berlin where he lived were kind of a, a ghetto, well, you know, a place where a lot of wealthy Jewish businessmen um, and their families lived. But also, you know, the poor, he says, you know, the poor for us were, it was at the back of beyond. So, you know, there's this disaster going on all, with, all, 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 all this, 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 this sense all the time, this one by great Marxist thinkers, you know, doesn't really understand. There's never really had mm. much contact with, with working classes. Um, but that, I think that book, you know, it's short. And, you know, if you've not read any Benjamin, um, it's a great way in. Because, as you say, you know, it, 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 it seems like it's just a straight a memoir of his childhood. And it seems rather, it seems, it seems and is Proustian. He's having, getting into a reverie about a lot of the experiences he had as a child, in, you know, like Proust, a similarly costed sort of upbringing. But he's also all the time walking, you know, talking about the Berlin he was raised in, particularly in the, in the 1890s, and seeing it as this capital which is fast becoming, overtaking Paris as a, as a, mm. as a, as a capital of Europe, as a modern capital, and reinventing itself with lots of new, you know, the Reichstags built in 1894, and, you know, great big department store, stores are coming up as well. And it, it's become, it's, it's sort of Berlin, but it's built on a Parisian model in, in lots of respects. It's echoing what had happened in Paris. And so he's, he's got this sense all the time of digging through. He talked about himself as, 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 as you know, digging into the, into the strata of history. So he's digging through the, 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 the smooth surface of this new Berlin, finding Paris underneath it, which mm. itself was modelled on other things. And so he's digging into history, and, and he's exposing all the time how we, how experience is becoming changed by the way in which capitalism is, is being developed, how consumerism is taking place, and how we're presented all the time with new things. There's this great passage where he writes about this thing called the Kaiser, the panorama. There's panoramas where, you know, you just sit in, mm. in, a, in a circle and watch these scenes revolve around you. And, he's, he, and he sees it about an eight-year-old kid, and he's seeing this stuff, um, sit watching these scenes um, of, of an art form, which is or a form of technology which is just poised to become obsolete. And, you know, he loves that. He loves things which are just be, about to become obsolete because he's developing a critique of our fetish for newness and our fetish for the must-have and our fetish for consumption and uh, how, the, how, how, how the, you know, the, everything fades and, 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 and shows how we mistake... Well, we, we want things which, we, which, which curdle before us, you know. He's talking about how experience gets, I, I suppose, commodified in itself and how... We become desiring machines, and never satisfied, and mm. never happy, and on and on and on. So he's, you know, he's just a fabulous, interesting guy. And then he leaves yeah. this tra tragic life because, he, he, mm. unlike Adorno and these other guys, he never really gets tenure. He mm. Never, he never. He's on the payroll for a bit of, of the institute, and he gets money from the Frankfurter Allgemeine, but he never gets an academic post really. And so he lives, lives off his wealthy dad, and he lives, you know, from hand to mouth for, uh, and, and then. You know, his father cuts him off. He leaves his wife in a rather shabby way, which make, makes one feel quite unsympathetic to him. 1933, he leaves uh, Germany for the last time, and he can't really write very much in his own language anymore. And he's utterly impoverished and spends his last years wandering Europe in this rather abject way, um, but still writing the best stuff he ever wrote. You know. Yes, and carrying the is it the arcades project? Yeah. Well, carry, carrying well, he had the arcades project with him, and also a sort of mysterious, mysterious manuscript thing. that we don't yeah, know yeah, what yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. Um, the arcades, well. yeah. I mean, one of the things that the arcades project. I don't know how many people know. I mean, it's this sort of huge tome that has since been published in fragmentary form, and but. One of the things I learned from your book, which I hadn't realised, was that it started off as a newspaper article, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then it just kind of grew and grew and became vast yeah. and unfinished. And, yeah. uh, but um, yeah, so he sort of also, and with this unknown manuscript, he was, and then he, you know, came to this very, it's quite well known, tragic um, 
misfortune, sort of of timing at the end where he yeah. was trying to cross into Spain as a refugee. And yeah, he, he and his sister... Heard that the border was closed. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, him and his sister fled. I think mm. they wound up somewhere um, in Lourdes, in fact, which is a really mm. weird place to wind up. Yeah. And then they get split up. He, get, he, get, he winds up going... Now, they've fled Paris because the Nazis are coming and, uh, you know, he knows what's going to happen because he'd already been arrested by the French and... Um, in prison for a while, so he knows, you know he knows that you know it's, it's a good time to get across, uh, get out, and the, and, the, and the really tragic thing I think is that you know he wants to get to Lisbon, get a, get a, get a, uh, sail across to, to the states where the rest of the French school are waiting for him. You know mm. they've looked up they've looked up for an apartment for him in, in Morningside Heights. You know, right. and that you know just intensifies the tragedy of what happened. So he, then he flees with some other people. Some other, you know, Jews who are trying to escape Hitler to get across the um, Pyrenees, um, gets across the Pyrenees, and then um, he's told something that turns out not to be the case that the, the Spanish are going to send send them back. So, takes his life in in a hotel room, or does he? So, I, I dally and probably over dally on 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 an, another theory, which is crazy. But it's, it's there are sort of conspiracy theories. Conspiracy and, theories yeah. that, that, that Stalin wanted to, you know, yeah. bump off the heretical uh, Frankfurt School Marxists. Seems <laughs> unlikely that they, they would be such a threat to him. But who knows yeah. in those paranoid times, you know. And meanwhile, all the other sort of um, dangerous, you know, Marxists have safely got themselves to America. And yeah, yeah. I mean, do you want to say a bit about them and how they made? their transition from leaving Europe, settling down into America, and then ending up in Los Angeles, which was such an incredible focus for intellectual life, actually, during the yeah. emigres. I mean, you've got Thomas Mann yeah. living there. Schoenberg. And Schoenberg, and Adorno. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, and sort of how did they all get along with each Awful. other? <laughs> oh, no, well, well, you know, they, they had these furious sort of rows. I mean, you know, when, when, oh, 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 just to say this, when... Um, in Los Angeles, where, where uh, when uh, Adorno helps uh, Thomas Mann on the composition of his novel Doctor Faustus, the musical passages, particularly, in that you know Mann takes on board um, essentially Adorno's critique of, of um, modern music uh, and uh, Adorno's n- newfound perspective on Schoenberg. Schoenberg, who's in LA at the time, reads the published novel and goes, you know, why what, you've just you just tried to destroy me, and he's furious about this, you know. So they got on quite waspishly in, 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 in a difficult way. But uh, how they get? I mean, how they got there? But one thing it's, it's always worth saying is that um, they had a lot, there's a lot of business acumen in in, 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 in Frankfurt School in the sense that they um, got their money out of um, Nazi Germany, you know, um, and, and managed to make some fairly astute investments, and um, then got away to. First, New York, where they were welcomed by um, people at Columbia University. Uh, then, lastly, I think the reason they went to LA really was principally because Horkheimer was wasn't very well, and then that was a better mm. climate for him there. Yes, his, doc- his doctor advised him to yeah. go there for the climate. But you know, but it, yeah, but also yeah. you know they, they arrive at what is you know mm. you, as you say this incredible um, what's called Weimar on, on Pacific, yeah. where they they're going to rebuild you know like latter day Goethe's and Schiller's, but down the road is everything that despise Hollywood, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I mean, who, I think it's that you say somewhere that, um, you know, the kind of this weird idea of, um, equi- because they hated Hollywood and they hated fascism. Yeah. And they saw both almost as a symptom of the same problem and the yeah. same thing that was out of kilter with the working class and with the. You know, they have further compared master. Hollywood to Goebbels, you know. And so, yeah, it's like the sort of fascism and Hollywood are basically the same thing, as yeah. far as they're concerned. And, um, and then, I mean, after the war, you've got this, this, or maybe it's still during, uh, in dialectic enlightenment, there's this whole um, sort of diagnosis of culture since the enlightenment as somehow inevitably leading to the Nazis, that like the Nazi, Nazi Germany is the, grows out of the enlightenment. And yeah. that, that really sort of, you get the feeling that for some of them, all that's gone wrong with the world ever since has been, has been all sort of contained in the enlightenment. So... I mean, it's it's fascinating. It's kind of disturbing to, to me. Certainly, I find that one of the most sort of problematic and yet also interesting things here. I mean, is there a place for Enlightenment values 
in the modern world? Would they? Gee, let's hope. Would they? Yeah. <laughs> right would now, they have? A, would they have a good word to say about Enlightenment values? Can they still be maintained, or is it all part of this? This total delusion. I've forgotten the German word, but I think yeah, I want yeah, to so, memorize yeah, it. Yeah, that's again. Yeah, yeah. The, I think yeah. The, what, what, is there a good thing to say about, about the Enlightenment? Yeah. I mean, yes, that there is. But what, what, what the thought they were be, bewitched? Certainly, Adorno and Horkheimer wrote the most. You know, the, the core Frankfurt School text. You know, the most influential one, which is Dialectic of Enlightenment. They were impressed by, I think, bewitched by. Um, what uh, Benjamin said that you know the, the, the flip side of, of civilization is, is barbarism, you know, and mm. so you know, and, and that's a, so they did, barbarism and civilization are dialectically linked, you know. Yeah, was it no civilization without barbarism? No document of civilization without barbarism? Yeah, was that yeah. The, yeah. So that, that's the, that's the mm. thought that people which but anything which looks good, anything you know that looks civilized or you know reason reason is necessarily bound up with its opposite, which is irrationalism mm. and the best critic of that is also a member of the Frankfurt School, um, Jürgen Habermas, who read Dialectic of Enlightenment as a young man, as a former Hitler youth and, um, and uh, teenage fighter for the, for the Nazis as the war came to an end, and so felt and not a Jew, which is quite significant. So he comes to, brings a lot of different perspectives to this. He read Dialectic of Enlightenment as a young man, thought it was fantastic, and then later on came to think, well, this is just a falsely totalising perspective on what the Enlightenment was so the Enlightenment for him. There is there is a good Enlightenment to be salvaged, yeah. and it is all the stuff you, you know. It's, it's, it's not in, in the instrumental re reason which is, which the Frankfurt School thought was a tool for oppression and a tool for capitalism to make money. Um, he thought science was in cahoots. He thought logic, you know, and analytical philosophy was in cahoots with uh, with the prevailing order, which good Marxists should want to destroy. Um, Habermas came to the perspective that. The, 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 there's a lot of in, lot of stuff that should be saved from the Enlightenment, mm. um, and uh, yeah. So he, and, and 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 his philosophy is actually, which is very sophisticated and very overlooked now. I think is is a, a you know it's a Pollyannaish response to this sort of uh, Cassandra-like um, right, nature yeah. of of, of the earlier Frankfurt School. Really. But it's it sounds as though Habermas had you know he wasn't just a kind of naive everything's fine everything no, will no. be fine if we can just learn to communicate it no. was a kind of I mean it was self founded on critical theory but he yeah. saw a way of overcoming that and sort of getting on to something more constructive yeah, yeah. He, he saw it as his duty I think mm. and he saw it, and the duty he took from Adorno who wrote that you know the new catacomb after 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 the Holocaust after Auschwitz he said Adorno wrote. There's a new categorical imperative. Um, our duty is to, to arrange our societies so that Auschwitz doesn't happen again. Mm. And that's what I think motivates Habermas's philosophy. That's, that's what it boils down to. It's to arrange society that, never, you know, that never, will never happen again. Which is an interesting counter quote, really, to the famous um, yeah. quote by Adorno, yeah. no poetry after Auschwitz, which is a quote that's been so sort of discussed and over the year and so analyzed and so sort of you know very emotive and um yeah. i know i realized that from your book that he actually himself kind of changed his mind about that so there's a, a later remark by adorno yeah. that he, he was it. wrong about that he yeah. retracted yeah. it yeah but also although it wasn't quite what he meant by it or you know that it was <laughs> but i think i think in that he's probably a victim of his mm. own rhetoric mm. rhetoric really. yeah. and he loves that sort of waspish flourish you know he, mm. he, he, he writes in that rather high, highly charged way a lot of the time but between writing that, that first essay and Negative Dialectics, where he pretty much retracted it, he met a lot, a lot of poets and, and, and who, who were themselves writing in what was, mm. you know, Horkheimer called the ghost sonata of post-war Germany, either Germany which d denied um, its, well, the, its Nazi past, or really, really failed, failed to come to terms with its Nazi, Nazi past, and they were writing poetry which was incessantly drawing attention to that past. Um, so I think that's what made mm. him you know, retract that statement sort of 15 odd years later. What was Max Horkheimer like? Because he, uh. he seems like the kind of Engels to, to yeah. Adorno's marks. But is that, is that a sort of, was he a shadowy figure? It sounds like actually he was really quite a mover and shaker, even sort of yeah. more than, I mean, well, if, if, if only because he led them all off to Los Angeles. That was sort of 
Yeah, had an impact oh, he's a student from that point. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's weird because you read about him in his early days, and he, he's he, he I cite him as, as the um, classic Frankfurt School boy in the sense that he he was a. Um, as a young man, his father was a successful businessman, and his father's destiny for his son was that he would work in the family firm. And you know, like a lot of, 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 of the Frankfurt School scholars, he, he rebelled against that, mm. that identity, and and he, and he spent a lot of time writing novellas, you know, Schopenhauerian novellas of pe pessimism and, and despair. Uh, and then he married. He married his his father's secretary, who wasn't a Jew, and that caused a great scandal. And and he began, and you know, he was the guy who liberated, who created this great, multi, you know, multidisciplinary institution. Mm. He brought on Eric Fromm, the psycho psychoanalyst, and came to regret his decision, <laughs> you know, because Fromm wasn't sufficiently Freudian for him. He brought on Adorno, um, he paid paid for for uh, Benjamin, brought on Marcuse, um, all these guys. He he brought on and, and made into you know, a great, in, you know, intellectual citadel, and then. You know what? 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 Before the war, had been known as Cafe Marx. The the Institute for Social Research in, in in was known as Cafe Marx, and then he presided over its mutation into what was later known as Cafe Max, because cafe, <laughs> yeah. the, the idea was it betrayed its Marxist origins. And and I think after the war, he and Adorno particularly returned to Frankfurt, which is an extraordinary thing to do. You know, to return to to you know the place where Cyclone B was. Experimented yeah. on, you know, the hotbed of, of, of Nazism, um, and rebuilt their lives. And he became very conservative, to the extent that um, in the late fifties, I think, uh, he fell out with Habermas, who was then a sort of quite hard to believe, a fiery radical who, who was leading demonstrations against um, Germany accepting uh, the German army being equipped with uh, NATO's nuclear weapons. Habermas was furious about this because he was worried that it would lose the institute a, a contract to do to, to do sociological work with the West German Ministry of Defence, right. which is such amazing yeah. shift, you know, from Marxist to somebody mm. you know kowtowing to. But but again, throughout he's very you know is mm. financially astute. You know, he's, he's sort of thinking about their money and and thinking about how they're going to survive and how they're going to survive is, is a kind of vexed question for Jews uh, Jewish intellectuals who've been through. The Holocaust and been through the Third Reich. You know. One of the things that I know you touch on in the in the book, so it's not you know it's not sort of coming out of the blue. But one thing that's very striking in this story is that there's very little in the way of women. Yeah. And that when they write, they don't seem particularly to to think about women very much, or to, that doesn't form part of their critique. No. Um, so I mean, two questions really. One is kind of I'm curious about the relationship of Hannah Arendt to quite a lot of the yeah. others because I know she. Um, you know, sort of wrote an introduction to Benjamin's Illuminations, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and and generally to the role that she was playing in America during the same period. So mm. that's one question, but also just generally, I mean, do you think that the, what what do you think they thought of the kind of the developing feminist movement or of the role of women in in their analysis of all of this? Do you think it came up, or were they sort of fairly oblivious, or or what? I think probably fairly mm. oblivious, but but mm. the, the, it's a curiosity, and it's, it's a depressing curiosity because you know you think of psychoanalytical psych, theory at, 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 at the same time, you know, similarly derided, mm. similarly similarly inspired by great Jewish intellectuals, but there are lots of women making mm. really important contributions. There aren't any women in the Frankfurt School worth worth, worth talking about, really, and that's awful. Um, and they don't write about write about women very much. They have, I mean, some some of them have pretty horrible relationships with women. Benjamin's Love life, but doesn't you know? He's, he's a pretty horrible one to in investigate, I think. Um, but in terms of treating women seriously or thinking about plight of women, there are very few pages. You know, minimum mm. moralia. There's some great stuff by Adorno, and, and there's, some, there's a great book now by uh, uh, called Feminist Interpretations of, of Adorno by Rennie Herbeller, which is really interesting about mm. trying to work out what. Critical theory has to say uh, what, what what can be used by feminists. I think there, there is stuff that can be used mm. you know, because um, we're all living in an oppressive society, and, and women are living in a particularly oppressive society, I suppose. But um, you know, I, I can well imagine that if you're a feminist, you can just sidestep critical theory altogether and, and, and not use it. And, and one, one, one additional thing is worth saying about about that is it's a horrible moment in I didn't I don't didn't write it about it in the book. Horrible moment in 1975 where. Uh, Marcuse has just written a little paper called Marxism and Feminism, 
and um, he, ha he has a meeting with Kate Millett, who at this stage is a celebrated feminist. You know, she just her doctorate has just been published in Sexual Politics, which is a great bestseller. And so this, they have this meeting, and I suppose for, from a, from Marcos's point of view, to be this great meeting of minds, and she just trashes him because sort of, she she really gets his number. She thinks that he's he 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 has he does, and he always says that he's looking everywhere for a surrogate for a disappointing working class. So he's looking for you know yeah. he's looking to, looking at the civil rights movement. He's, you know, he's looking for feminists. He's looking for anybody who might you know be, be the revolutionary subject that's so lacking. And he proposes that hey, women could be that. And right. she just sort of says women are used to being used, you know, and she just trashes it. Devastatingly, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, a last question before we open it out to, because I'm sure there'll be lots of questions from, um, from people out there. Um, and it's kind of the sort of, the one that, I mean, I touched on it a bit earlier, but what would they have made of modernity? And I mean, I'm thinking not just of the incredible sort of whirl of consumerism and the Tate Modern gift shop and all of these other things, but for example, the internet. Yeah. I mean, even Benjamin, you know, with his talk of the work of art in the age of reproduction and the aura that sort of goes missing. Yeah. Um, would they have welcomed the internet as being the sort of disruptive and an open force that sort of opens up this, um, this, this great, sort of stage for, for everything to, to be discussed and critiqued? Right. Or would they have seen it as being just yet another, even more extreme phase of this great world of consumerism? And, it and depends on the, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. it depends on the internet mm. you're talking about. You mm. know, I mean, you, you know, I'm, sure, I'm sure that they'd have been appalled by Facebook and Twitter and by you know, what that, that, the impoverishment of experience, I'm sure they'd have argued that that, that entails. Um, and, and, and they... Uh, they, they would have been suspicious of... Well, I'd say, I'd say the best thing to say about it is I, 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 when I interviewed Habermas, uh, um, I interviewed him in the context of him being Twitter-jacked by somebody. Mm. And he was Twitter-jacked by this guy I, I, I later tracked down and, and, and involved... It was a kind of sweet thing he did. He just cut and pasted some footnotes from a Habermas paper about the possibility of the internet representing the revival of the public sphere as an autonomous space for intellectual development and critique of society. And he just cut and pasted these things, and Habermas was furious that yeah. somebody, you know, dared to sort of. All he was doing was quoting, quoting the guy under his own name, I suppose. Um, and I asked Habermas, "Did you? Can you imagine the internet being a, 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 a space that might involve this revivification of, of the public sphere, where we all aren't just, you know, controlled by organisations, or, or you know, where we can actually freely express our opinions?" And he just said, "No, I, I have no faith in it. What I really hate is that." Um, the internet seems to be destroying newspapers, which I take to mm. be the place where um, um, you know there, there can be you know a fight against or resistance to governments and powers that be. So it just seems like a really naive, maybe yeah. you know, naive perspective on on what the internet could be. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. And um, yeah, let's open it out. I know we've got microphones. Um, yeah, there. So I. I know I spotted you immediately and you too, but uh, keep an eye out on the others. So. I think there is a microphone if you want to. This lady there. I have a question if you can explain the uh, Adorno to me. Um, here is someone who starts his uh, negative dialectics by saying that uh, philosophy is still relevant because it hasn't done its job. I still, the revolution did not happen in. Germany, you know, it's only happened in Russia, but not in Germany. Yeah. And then when there is a student uh, uproar and uprising in 68 or whatever, yeah. and his own uh, PhD students, you know, are there with a flag and whatever, and he does not want to join. Yeah. And moreover, he calls the police, I think, on campus when the he students are going yeah, right. So, and they are saying, you know, we are trying to do what you taught us in your lectures and whatever, and he would not uh, do it. What is what is the explanation to it? It's a tragic. It's a tragic moment. I mean, it's, it's tragedy for him because it kind of leads very quickly to his death. You know, the way in which he feels humiliated in class, but when it's then disrupted. And, and uh, but he say, he says he said something very very pertinent um, about the student rebellions. He, he said that barricades are ridiculous to those who administer the bomb. So his perspective was that there was. That these, the, the students were acting out something 
which we know which might have worked in 1848, you know, didn't work in 1968. It was kind of ridiculous. Um, and, and for me, that's one of the most upsetting moments, really, because I, w I wonder if, if Walter Benjamin had lived and been in that situation, he might not, he might, I suspect he would have seen it the opposite being the case, because he was always concerned, Benjamin was, that we break out of this, what he called the continuum of history, you know, this empty homogeneity time, which is dictated by the ruling classes. And in doing so, what we do is we express solidarity with former revolutions. And, and, and we make what he called a tiger's leap into the past. And, 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 so, and, 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 and in doing so, we ennoble ourselves. You know, we don't, we, we do to failure, it doesn't matter. We, we, we act and we ennoble ourselves by striving to, well, by resisting the powers that be. For Adorno, that doesn't happen in reality. The place where, the only, the only, he retreats in, in, into thought, he retreats into art. They're the places where you can fictively indict the, 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 the existing order. I think that's, that's what's happening. But it's awful what happens to me. Just you know, he, 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 initially he's quite sympathetic to the students, um, but but he just gets humiliated again and again. You know, they're writing on 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 chalk on the board. If, if Adorno is left in peace, capitalism will never cease, and you know, it's just mm. an awful awful end to his life, really. Thanks. I think there was one right next door. Um, just really quickly, so I, I was sharing with the gentleman at my side that my background is socio-cultural anthropology. However, yeah. I've been, um, for the good and for the bad, I had a mentor who was absolutely in love with the Frankfurt School. So 25 years ago, I read all the Frankfurt School yeah. by default and training. And I feel fortunate to be actually in a context of other Frankfurt, Frankfurt School readers scholars slash experts or whatever else because there's still one knot in my understanding that remained actually unlocked and so um, I was very very intrigued to open it up actually for discussion so while I was reading the classics and the you know critical theory one and two and whatever else and then I read cultural industry uh, by Adorno and yeah. my interpretation was exactly like probably both of you gave meaning oh it's a tool for indoctrination it is a you know top-down sort of thing and I got absolutely stopped by my mentor was it no that's positive dialectic they are actually advocating for negative dialectic mm. which basically means is actually the working classes or the lower class which allow somehow the dominance so it's that's why it's negative eliana read it again <laughs> read it again you know think it again contextualize again so i was really intrigued about what's your take about how does it fit in in the whole body in the whole disorder because my reading innocently i suppose was like yours uh, about jazz and all that yeah and i've got this critical comment uh, pun intended somehow yeah. to revisit and invited to reread it in context of the negative dialect. So I'm wondering if you have any addition or any comments, or either of you, both of you, or anyone else in the audience to. Um, well, I think you definitely make that it. distinction in the book between. I mean, you just you explain the negative dialectic concept very clearly, and um, um, but it, it's. I mean, it's interesting just listening to that. Where there's an element of kind of blaming the working class. Yeah. yeah. Is that, I mean, I don't know if that's a, an angle on that. But anyway, yeah. Thank you. What I think, no, no, absolutely. I think what Frankfurt School can understand, what the culture industry does, it rather tragically doesn't grasp is that working classes can appropriate popular culture, subvert it. And, and it, you know, what, what, the, what was happening actually in Birmingham, Frankfurt's twin city, in 1960 is actually more interesting than what's happening in Frankfurt because they're thinking about culture as working class people express it and, 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 and celebrate it and you know subvert the existing norms that, that they're much less terrified of the working classes than the supposed Marxists in Frankfurt mm -hmm. um, I think um, yeah I don't that just doesn't really help I don't think but uh, I was uh, I think we've got one in but, uh, <laughs> this is something moment in my reading of the whole I tell you, I think who's, who's very useful on this is Angela Davis, you know, who stu studied with yeah, Marcuse. Oh, I, I was and, and, working with her in my doctorate, actually. And she's fantastic. And she's, she wrote this great book about uh, blues singers and, you know, about how they subvert, you know, the culture industry from within. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And that's what we, that's what you need. To, that's 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 where the Frankfurt School is really weak. I think it it doesn't take on board that kind of role. Not fully, I suppose, or it doesn't convey fully until Benjamin. I think actually Benjamin had yeah. some power with visual communication and yeah, right. power to architecture or some other subliminal forms that somehow allowed this destabilization of allocation of power. Yeah. Somehow or power structures. The only thing about him is he didn't he didn't get music at all. He had a blind yes. spot about music, which is which yes. is unfortunate. Yes. Thanks very much. We've got one uh, here. The question I was going to ask, and I think in a sense it relates to, to what's just being argued, is the thing, of course, that is a huge problem is that none of them knew anything about the working class in practical terms. Yeah. They didn't, I mean, you explained that, in fact, the workers and the poor were things well outside their experience. They had no connection in that sense with the political organisations either, right. which were hugely important. Right. So in a sense, the whole thing becomes a sort of theoretical look at why the revolution didn't occur without them having been participants within it or knowing people and understanding that. Okay. And I think that's one of the things that is a huge problem for Marxist theory by people like them, where practice is not part of what they're really aware of in yeah. terms of political practice. The recognition that they, one or two of them may have been in the, the revolution in terms of fighting, but there were only one or two, or maybe only one. Yeah. And all the rest of them were people who were divorced from it. So it's a bit like observing something through a microscope and the animal underneath has no relationship to you. Somewhere, those sort of connections have got to be made. And it's a massive problem, a massive, massive problem historically in terms of certainly since the 1920s, there has always been an emphasis on political theory that does not necessarily embed itself in political practice. That's why the book's called what it's called. Um, <laughs> because, 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 yeah, no, Lukash says, you know, who was, became this Bolshevik, you know, and, and committed the revolution, all that sort of stuff. He, he says, uh, these guys are just living in a grand hotel, they're, they're sitting on the terrace, they're, you know, the waiters are bringing lovely drinks, and they're looking down, looking down, and I think that's exactly, you, you, your analysis is unfortunately bang on. Have we got any other? Yes, we've got one, I think, over there. And uh, yes, I'm not sure, no idea which, uh, which one is. Uh, but yeah, we'll come back to you. So, of course, these people end up in exactly the right place when they go to the United States yeah. in terms of non political engagement. <laughs> because how can a Marxist be politically engaged in the United States when there's no political outlet yeah. for Marxism? But I, ha I had another question, <laughs> which is. Um, do you think there's a relationship between Adorno's attitude towards um, popular culture and Sontag's? Sontag. I'm thinking about Kitsch. Yeah. Susan Sontag. Susan Sontag. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He sees any form of popular culture as necessarily just, just using old forms in a, in, a, in, a, in a blank, dull way, you know. Um, she, but she liked popular culture, didn't she? She, she, she embraced yeah. it, but critiqued it. I don't think he overtly writes. Uh, you know, I don't. Does he use the word kitsch very much? I mean, he doesn't really. He, he doesn't really avert, overtly think about it. <laughs> and camp was her sort of. Yeah. Works on camp was. But she's a sort of later. I mean, she must have been very aware of, <laughs> of them. I mean, she was a later. Well, I don't. Generation. We Yeah, we didn't really talk about this. How this, this, yeah. this gap that mm. a lot of. Um, Radical thinkers of that time mm. look to France and, and mm. Germany gets lost, and the French don't talk mm. to the Germans, and the yeah. Germans don't talk to the French. No. Um, okay, we've got another. We've got one question there and one question there. Um, Thanks very much. Yeah. Just, just quickly then. Do you, don't you think that um, they were fundamentally wrong? Um, that that <laughs> on everything, everything. <laughs> you know, that, well, no. The essential point that yeah. uh, if people want to go and buy tat in in a very plural, free way, then then Tastic, how can yeah. you attribute a, a, a political interest to you know, the, the diversity of, of uh, what people do? You can't ascribe you know, powerful forces behind it in a, in a sort of Marxist way. It just seems to me that however fascinating they are, they, they got it wrong. What, that the fashions just change and the no, culture just change? And that, people that, that people want to go and buy you know, objects that, that don't serve their interests 
but that's that's the free society, and, and ultimately. But couldn't it um, still be worth thinking um, about it critically? You can't say there's the, it's, it's, there's an evil mm. capitalist force that's drawing it all together. That um, that but culture is is wide and diverse, and getting more diverse mm. as we as we go on. Yeah, I, mean, I think we live in a free world where we where we're very happy with the consumerist situation we're in. I think a lot of people are, you know. Um, it's, it's, it, and, and, and a lot of other people can say, well, you're not very happy, really. And, 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 and I think people like Benjamin trying to account for why um, we, we, we seem to be trapped in, in, in patterns of consumerism, um, which we should get beyond. But I absolutely accept your point. It's really hard to make that argument. Some of you, you know, to, it's not a Marxist argument, is it? It's not a Marxist argument that right. it Right, yeah, e evil, evil, yeah, evil is not a word really. As a self reproducing mode of production. That's right. That's right. I think that's, that's probably the way to put it right. It's in, sort of invoking evil and, and stuff is probably yeah, not. I think, mm, you said that Habermas was being naive yeah. about the internet. Sorry? It seems to me you were saying that Habermas was being a bit naive about the internet. Talk the microphone there so but, that everybody can hear. But sure, I think one of the most apposite um, quotes, I, mean, I probably have quite slightly misquoted, is the person who said, if you're not paying for it, you are the object being sold. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. I think that the whole way in which the internet now is c constructed, I think Adorno would have a lot to say about. And having myself thought that Adorno had kind of got it all wrong, <laughs> I've begun to be creeping. I'm, I'm certainly Yay. creeping back because he got an awful, awful lot of it right. Yeah. And I think the internet really shows us that. But the internet needn't have been that way. You know? it was no, like it needn't have been that way, but capitalism got in the way, didn't it? And it doesn't it always? And global capitalism on this yeah. case, and we haven't been able to but do much about it. It's also true what gentleman behind you says. It's made us very happy. You know, we, 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 we've Does it really make us yeah, very happy? We're, we're all, we're all, we're all well, tweeting, we're all, we're all on Facebook. I'm not all, sure. We feel more fulfilled as a result of that. I mean, but an awful lot of us feel, or a lot of people feel very miserable about it. I mean, tweeting yeah, and trolling are very close to one another. <laughs> they sort of seem to go together, don't they? I yeah. mean, it's two halves. That they're sort of the, the, uh, the happiness and the kind of the catastrophic end of capitalism might actually go together. You know, it might be something that is uh, a two, two sides of the same coin. I think that's all we've got time for, actually, but there'll be loads of time to... To come up and have a glass of wine if there's it's wine and have a chat and certainly to um yeah did you want to yeah yeah there's a cake we've got oh, a, oh yeah we've got, cake. We've got a fabulous cake which is like a fa <laughs> well, she, 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 that was the earlier book <laughs> no, we've got a facsimile of, of, of the book in, in a cake form yeah. and there's, there's a, probably so, yeah, there's, a, there's a cake so don't accidentally buy the cake when you're trying to buy the yeah. book because <laughs> thanks for time thanks for listening to find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.